0: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland, and today joining me in the studio is Joe McCormick. Joe, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: Thank thank you.
1: It was kind of a last-minute jump in.
0: It was. It was. uh, Originally, Lauren Vogelbaum was going to sit in on this one, but Lauren's feeling a little under the weather, and we just wanted to look back at the year 2014, some of the big stories that happened, stuff that I didn't cover in the predictions episode because we didn't know it was going to happen, and then it happened. That's kind of the way that tends to work.
1: I think your crystal ball is faulty.
0: Yeah, it turns out that I was actually just staring into a magic eight ball and, uh, that was it.
1: I think the problem is that you're not actually using crystal. You're, you've been peering into a plutonium core.
0: That would also explain the loss in teeth. So at any rate, let's talk about some of the big stories in 2014. Some of the stuff that happened. Throughout the year. Now, we're just going to be kind of covering some interesting things and not everything, obviously. The highlights and the lowlights. Yeah, nothing nothing like uh, every story, what happened in 2014. It would take us way too long.
1: You know, 2014, I think, has been a really interesting year for tech. And one of the most interesting things about it to me is that it seems like this has really been the year of the hack.
0: That is absolutely the way I would put it.
1: Yeah. Th- I mean, there have been big hacks and security breaches in the past. But sure. 2014, there were so many of them and with such far ranging impact that I think it was the year where the average person out there, the person who doesn't really follow technology news, is really starting to understand that a lot of the conflicts that are looming large in our future are going to be technology and cybersecurity related conflicts.
0: Yeah. You know, we've heard stories in the past, everything from uh, discovery of code in uh, infrastructure, things like u- utility infrastructure that that showed that there was possible uh, Chinese incursions into our infrastructure. You know, those stories have come and gone. And but this year really has displayed it. I mean, there have been a lot that have directly impacted consumers. Uh of course in 2013 there was the Target um hack the one that stole a whole bunch of credit card information as well as other stuff from Target mm-hmm. and the fallout of that continued into 2014 but there are a lot of other stories we're going to touch on some of them that involve hackers hitting different sites
1: yeah Uh, well, in fact, maybe we should just go through all the stories of the year chronologically because it looks like in your notes, Jonathan, the very first thing you have is about a hack.
0: No, it is, in fact. That was that hackers who posted data about Snapchat users claim they did so to show that Snapchat security wasn't sufficient.
1: (laughs) Was this in uh, January of this year? Yeah,
0: it was. This is uh, the first story we have. So this, the, the hack itself had happened toward the tail end of 2013, but this was where we started getting information about what the hackers say their motivation happened to be. So, you know, there are different types of hackers. And I've talked about this before. There are hackers who what they're interested in is just learning how a system works and then how to modify that system has nothing to do with breaching security. Right. It's just learning how something works, being able to build it yourself, maybe modify it, maybe make it do something it wasn't intended to do. Uh, But it it has nothing necessarily nefarious about it. Then you've got things like. White Hat hat Hackers versus Black Hat Hackers. White Hat Hackers are the ones who work with companies to test their security, and they'll try to uh, breach that security and then explain to the company how they were able to do it so that they can patch that vulnerability. Black Hat hat Hackers are the ones that are trying to do it for some sort of gain, either an ideological gain where they are bringing down a, a, a company or organization that has philosophy that doesn't agree with their own philosophy or monetary gain where they're stealing stuff either to directly benefit themselves or to sell off to other people. Uh, so in this case, the hackers were saying we were just trying to prove that this company that says it has your privacy at heart doesn't really protect your privacy. That's all we were trying to do. But the way they did it was uh, perhaps a little more on the black hat side than the white hack. It's not like they alerted Snapchat and said, Hey, by the way, we discovered this vulnerability. You need to address it. Instead, they they actually attacked. So,
1: was you know, this at all related to the fact that Snapchat? I think it was Snapchat that they were claiming that they delete all of your messages, yes. but they actually don't.
0: Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there were a lot of issues with that Snapchat because, again, yeah, like you were pointing out, Snapchat is all about sending someone a message that's supposed to have kind of a self-destruct element to it so that Uh, it's supposed to be ephemeral and not
1: leave a trail for future generations to come discover what uh you know grandma and grandpa were sending to each other on their phones right
0: and it doesn't necessarily have to be you know salacious it often is but it doesn't have to be it could just be i don't want this to live anywhere because it's just a goofy picture and i just thought it was funny and that's all uh but yeah it turned out that they're they're promises of things being deleted exactly when you expected them to be were not completely true. The next story in January is that the US Appeals Court struck down the FCC's 2011 regulations that demanded Internet providers treat all traffic equally because the court said the FCC lacked the authority to enact the regulations in the first place.
1: Uh Uh-oh. Sounds like this is going to lead to some more net neutrality squabbles. Yeah,
0: this was a big, big deal. I mean, and a lot of people were pointing out that this was a potential issue at the very beginning, saying it's not that I, like people were saying, I don't disagree that we need to have net neutrality rules in place. The problem is that the FCC is trying to, uh, to exert authority over something it doesn't have authority over. And it was because of the classification of Internet communications. We'll come back to the story toward the end of 2014. But yeah, that was a big, big uh, news item early on. Also in January, Lenovo bought Motorola Mobility from Google for $3 billion. And meanwhile, Google bought Nest for $3.2 billion. Nest is the company that made... Or that still thermostat, might. right? Yeah. It also did smoke detectors, which in 2014, it ended up having to recall because of some issues.
1: Wait, but, no. Okay. One sentence explanation. How is the Nest thermostat actually special?
0: Well, it, it learns your behaviors. So if you like to have your house nice and cool in the evening and warm and toasty in the morning, it learns that and then starts to preset things so you don't have to ever program it to do so. It just ah. learns what you want. Uh And can even do things like when it realizes there's no one in the house, it can start to turn things off. So that way you're not wasting energy heating a house that has no one in it. OK. Yeah. And the final story of January 2014 was that the Apple Mac turned 30. What year were you born, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the old
1: 1986.
0: OK, so the Mac is older than you are. Uh, the Apple Mac, uh, I remember the, I remember in 1984 when the commercial for the Apple Mac came out, that was the Orwellian one. You probably have seen it even.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The, throwing the, the sledgehammer. down a hall. Yeah. She
1: throws and shatters the screen. Right. Whose face is it up on the screen? Is it like John Hurt or somebody?
0: Uh, yeah, something like that. Uh, you know, uh, although if it was John it might Hurt.
1: Not, it might not actually be a famous person. I was
0: about to say, if it was John Hurt, the John Hurt hasn't, has, has remained old man age since 1984 and hasn't changed since it's not that he stayed young he's just stayed just as old no
1: actually you know i think i'm thinking of him as the big totalitarian face on the screen in uh oh what's the movie which movie? v for vendetta
0: oh all right yeah isn't it john hurt i think you're right i, I have never seen v for vendetta ah it's kind of odd right
1: because i mean that's well it's got a from what i recall it's got john hurt talking into a big screen and you know spittles coming out of his mouth he looks very angry about something he's
0: being the the big brother type character yeah well in february 2014 that was when we got a big news item where microsoft finally announced its new ceo so balmer had stepped down as ceo no yeah no that spoiler alert balmer stepped down as ceo developers developers i'm gone and then uh, Satya Nadella became the new CEO of Microsoft, and he was a veteran of the company. He had been there for 22 years. Uh, Bill Gates, meanwhile, transitioned from chairman of the Microsoft board to the role of technology advisor. Hmm. Uh, Microsoft's competitor, Sony, announced 5,000 job cuts and that they were going to split the TV division into a wholly owned subsidiary and to sell off its PC business. So this was a big news, and not the last time we'll talk about Sony in this podcast, obviously. <laughs> Anyone who's aware of current news knows that we're going to have to come back around to Sony by the end. Surely. Um Also in that month, February 2014, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory announced they had produced fusion power using high-powered lasers. And not only that, but they got more energy out of the fusion fuel then was put into the fusion fuel. That's
1: a big deal. Well, that would certainly be the goal if you're going to try to generate municipal energy off fusion.
0: Exactly. And that was a a tough goal, right? It was one of those things where we can achieve fusion, but we're pouring so much energy to make the reaction happen that we're on a losing end of the proposition. Now, one thing to keep in mind, this does not mean that we're suddenly going to have fusion power plants everywhere because the laser only reached about 1% of the fuel so this is still a long way from becoming a new way of generating electricity. You got more energy out of it, but you were only able to consume a tiny portion of the actual fuel. So it's not an efficient system yet, but it's very encouraging. Now, in March 2014, we get some another hacking story. Uh, Mount Gox, uh, G-O-X, <laughs> you, you know, why it's called mount gox right you know what the story is behind that name. i don't at all so mount gox if you were to spell out the the first three letters you got m t for mount and then big uppercase g for gox magic the gathering <laughs> i know i thought you would enjoy that joe
1: it's so magical. Yeah. Well, so, wait, hold on. What does that have to do with Bitcoin? Well,
0: it's, it was, the, it was the world's largest Bitcoin exchange. Now. No,
1: no, no. I mean, what does Magic the Gathering have to do with Bitcoin?
0: You can buy a crap ton of Magic the Gathering cards with some Bitcoin, my friend. Um, Are you going
1: to tell me that Magic the Gathering cards are going to be the the successor to Bitcoin as the next cryptocurrency? I would
0: say that there was definitely a a bartering system with Magic the Gathering cards for a good long while before Bitcoin came around. But obviously, Magic the Gathering is not a digital format.
1: Hold on. You were going to tell me an event. What happened to Mt. Gox?
0: It got hacked,
1: dude. Another hack. Yeah,
0: in this case, this was a true hack. This was not a DDoS attack. This was the real deal. And the exchange completely collapsed because 750,000 bitcoins belonging to Mt. Gox customers, as well as 100,000 bitcoins belonging to the exchange itself, were stolen in that hack.
1: Now, I may be misremembering, but I thought that the idea of Bitcoin was sold as an unhackable solution.
0: You are correct, sir. (laughs) Uh, the idea was that it was, it had security measures in place that would prevent you from being able to do something like spend the same Bitcoin more than once. Because mm-hmm. that's a, obviously a concern with any digital format. Obviously, if I give you a digital file, let's say it's a music file, and you think this, this song's pretty awesome, I'd like to share this with all my friends, you could copy it as many times as you wanted and send as many copies as you wanted to everyone. Or you could upload a copy and everyone else could End up grabbing that copy from the cloud and they all have a copy of that song. What happens when your money is in this format? But Bitcoin is supposed to be made in such a way that it's impossible to steal. It's impossible to, to spend more than one uh, Bitcoin or it's impossible to spend the same Bitcoin more than once at a time. I mean, unless it eventually made its way back to you, but it's a little complex the way the Bitcoin transactions work. At any rate, um, the, the, People behind Bitcoin were saying this was due to faulty security at Mount Gox. It had nothing to do with the format of the Bitcoins themselves. They were it was like saying you can't fault a dollar for being stolen from a bank. Like if uh, if if thieves come into a bank and they they breach a bank security, it's not the fault of the currency within it.
1: Oh, OK. Well, then, I mean, that doesn't really matter to the average person no, using no. Bitcoin. No, it doesn't. Their stuff can still be hacked. Yeah. I mean.
0: Yeah, that was the problem was that the issue, the, the bottom issue is that th- this exchange still collapsed and another one, a smaller one called Flexcoin just a week later also went belly up after, uh, after being targeted and, and thieves attacked them and stole bitcoins from them. So for a while, people were wondering if this was going to be the beginning of the end of the, the cryptocurrency, but it stuck around. So uh, spoiler alert for later in the year. Uh, also in March, Edward Snowden addressed the South by Southwest Interactive Conference via streaming because he's still a wanted man uh, to talk about the need for better encryption systems in the era of digital surveillance.
1: You don't say.
0: Yeah. He's saying, hey, look, here's the deal. People are spying on you one way or the other. Maybe it's a company. Maybe it's a government. Maybe it's hackers. But people are looking at your stuff. They might not be actively looking at your stuff. They might be gathering your stuff and then one day down the road, they might look for at a it. rainy day. Exactly. It could be one of those things where someone gets this notion to search for a particular search term and it pulls up all interactions between people who use that search term in some way. Maybe you're one of those people. So maybe what we need to do is really look at some good ways to encrypt communication so that only the person who who only the people communicating are the ones who have access to that info. Um So it was a very interesting thing that he was actually virtually at South by Southwest. Also in March, IBM showed off the power of artificial intelligence at South by Southwest using a food truck in which the cooks prepared food based off recipes made by an artificially intelligent program.
1: Huh? Yeah. Users would put in. I a, did not read about this at the time. It's
0: kind of silly, but users would put in a few preferences <laughs> about what they liked as food. The program would then it essentially had a database of recipes and based upon your preferences would suggest uh something interesting based on that. And then the cooks, the human cooks inside the food truck would actually make your meal. So it's not like a robot was cooking your food. It was just choosing what it was you were going to eat.
1: And obviously it couldn't be. I would love to see all the ways that went wrong.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Uh I don't know how well it Why did. Why did
1: you put cinnamon sticks on this pizza? <laughs>
0: yeah, right. Uh, there there was certainly not an unlimited choice. Obviously, they were limited to whatever things they could prepare in that food truck. But it was an interesting approach. Um, and, you know, just sh- showing that Watson can win at Jeopardy as well as cook you a, a decent meal. <laughs> uh, the United States government in March asked the Internet Corporation for assigned names and numbers. That's called ICANN mm-hmm. uh, to come up with a transition plan for the U.S. to relinquish control of the Internet. So this was essentially saying, when I say control of the internet, I really mean, uh, the, the whole naming convention, being in charge of all that kind of stuff. That all fell under does the that, purview, purview of the U.S.
1: Does that originally go back to DARPA? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know the internet does, but the naming conventions.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, stuff. well, yeah, because it was the, it was the founders of, well, essentially it was the people working on ARPANET who came up with the protocols that the internet would end up following. And it was through their work that, Uh, the the rules were set. Like, this is how we name things. And uh, it kind of evolved from there. So it's more like the roots of this can be traced back to DARPA. Maybe not not a direct line in the sense of it was exactly the same way. But yes, it certainly does go back there. Uh, And in March, that's when Sony announced Project Morpheus, which is a VR headset, kind of a competitor to the Oculus Rift. Mm -hmm. Although the Oculus Rift has been... Uh, is is being developed just for computer systems, not for consoles. Whereas the Morpheus would presumably work with the PlayStation.
1: Now, wait a minute. Did Sony buy the Oculus Rift? No, Facebook did. Facebook. That's right.
0: Yeah, Facebook bought Oculus, uh, which was a big, you know, that was a big head scratcher for a lot of people, saying, "Well, this is kind of weird." And, uh, it was one of those things
1: that. <laughs> Experience 360 degrees of annoying people on your newsfeed.
0: It was also what caused, uh, the Mojang founder, or Mojang founder, Notch, the guy who created Minecraft, to say, well, that means Minecraft's not coming to the Oculus Rift. Because he didn't like Facebook at all. all right. he, he later said that maybe he was being a little reactionary, but. He was just like, I don't like Facebook's privacy policies. I don't like how they make, you know, they make people their product. And I'm not I'm not crazy about developing Minecraft for them. So not that, not that that matters, but we'll get to that. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan. And on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change.
1: Uh, next generation VR headset in the works.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, have has you any- ever
1: has anybody tried these out yet? I I haven't read I, about that. I've this. tried the Oculus. Rift. No, no, no. I mean the Morpheus.
0: Oh no, it hasn't. It it's still I think in the prototype stage. Okay, it's, it hasn't been released yet. Have you tried a VR headset like a a recent one?
1: Not a recent one. Like I tried one in the nineties. Yeah, which when they were like pretty funny. Yeah,
0: the the with the polygon pterodactyls and yeah. stuff. Yeah, and I I did that too. I tried an Oculus Rift for the first time. I've got a friend who works for Google and he had an Oculus Rift developer kit. So I went over to his house and tried it out and was almost immediately completely disoriented and feeling sick to my stomach. So (laughs) I said, all right, I'm done with this. He's like, don't you want to try? And this was this was the program he gave me was literally you're walking around a villa in like it's like a it's like a virtual villa in Italy. (laughs) <laughs> so, so you think, like, and there's nothing going on. It's just you no walking zombies through no, a villa. You're just, just walking through a villa. Like, there's no mafia hits going on in the lawn. Nothing like that. And, um, and so I did that. And just that alone was enough to make me feel a little like, Ooh, I'm, I'm feeling a little swimmy, loosey goosey, weird. And part of it was because the control scheme, right? Like, mm-hmm. I could move my head and that would change my perspective, but I still had to use a controller to move around. And it was that disconnect that was causing some issues.
1: Right. So maybe if you had it with a uh one of those in place treadmills, yeah. the gaming treadmills. Sure,
0: that might that might have helped a little bit. But it was funny because he said, Don't you want to try the space uh ship game that I have that you can run? I'm like, No. Do you want your computer to be covered in my lunch? Because that's what's gonna happen if we try that. So But uh moving on, we've got another hacker story for April 2014. That's when the Heartbleed bug is discovered. In certain versions of the OpenSSL software, uh, which is a, a secure socket layer software, it's meant mm-hmm. to provide that secure or what you assume is a secure connection between your browser and some other website. So things like banking sites use this. Lots of sites use this. I mean, you know, if you see like HTTPS, that's a type of the secure software. Not everyone uses the specific type to to do that, but it is one of the very popular ones. They discovered that in one version of it, there was this bug that could potentially allow attackers to access information that could include sensitive material. It all was information that was stored in um, random access memory. So it wasn't everything. It was just a certain number of characters. And the way it worked was that uh, if I send you, let's say that that we're going to represent, Joe, you and I, what happened with this Heartbleed bug. Okay, I'm ready. So I'm going to send out a message just to make sure you are listening to me. And you have to repeat back that message to me in order to prove that you are listening to me, and then everything's cool and we can keep on going. So when I send out that message to you, it uh, is a certain number of characters long. Let's say it's 20 characters long. So you get it and you see that it's 20 characters long, so you know that's how long the message has to be. So you repeat the message, it's 20 characters long, send it back to me. Now let's say I send you a message And it's 20 characters long, but the package says it's actually 500 characters long. Now, you, being a dum-dum, can't tell the difference between 20 and 500. You you see the 20 characters that are the beginning of this supposed 500-character message, but now there's all this empty space. So, panicking, you just grab whatever happens to be nearby, and you shove it at the end of the message. This is whatever happens to be in your random access memory. It's like short-term memory for people. Now, if we're talking about a service like a bank transaction, that information might include my password because I had to enter it to get into the system. Right. So you sent in plain text back to me a message that has 20 characters of whatever it was I, I sent plus all this other information. So it meant that a hacker if they got in the middle of this could end up getting sensitive information like login information or other account information obviously a huge vulnerability but somewhat relying on the luck of the draw
1: yeah well it did in the end mean that almost everybody on the internet had changed some passwords
0: yeah and well the scary thing was that people were saying yeah it doesn't you know you got to wait until the service upgrades their version of OpenSSL Because if you just change your password before they've upgraded, the same thing can keep on happening to you. So it was it was truly scary. This is another one of those things that really drove it home to the consumer, at least people who are paying attention. It was truly scary because there wasn't a lot we as consumers could do. We Mm -hmm. had to depend upon other companies to do the right thing first, and then we could you know, end up. Changing our passwords as a result.
1: Right. And things like this matter, I think, because it's, um, it's something that the consumer cannot be blamed for. Yeah. It's not something where it's just that the end user is not, you know, following best practices, right. is designing weak passwords or something like this. You can be doing everything right and still have all of your information threatened.
0: Yeah. It's one of the most frustrating parts about this kind of security vulnerability. It's that. You know, we already know there are all these things that people don't do on on average, like they are not keeping enough strong passwords. But then they could look at these stories and say, look, it doesn't even matter if I do everything right. Yeah, <laughs> it is a little frustrating. Uh, also, in April, uh, one week after assuming the position of CEO of Mozilla, Brendan Ike stepped down because it had been revealed that he had donated money to a California ballot measure that was uh, anti-gay marriage. And Mozilla's corporate values are focused on equal rights and free speech. So the corporate philosophy of the company and the personal philosophy of the new CEO were not at all in alignment. And there was an intense amount of pressure. And so as a result, one week after becoming CEO, he stepped down, which, you know, that, that, that's an interesting story. Mozilla had a rough year, uh, overall in 2014, but, uh, that one really opened up my eyes when it happened. And, uh, the next one is probably the most dramatic story of the year beyond these hacking stories. This is the one that took place in a desert. Alamo, Alamo, Alamogordo. <laughs> I can say it eventually. Alamogordo, New Mexico. It's when excavators were digging and they discovered aliens. No. Well, cartridges of, of, of a game about an alien
1: you're talking about ET for the Atari 2600 et
0: the extraterrestrial for the Atari 2600 yes I am yeah this was the 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 long you know held story the belief that the that, that these cartridges had been taken out to the desert and unceremoniously dumped
1: no I think it was not just this game right there were no, a lot of poorly others. performing games that were taken out there and dumped because yeah. they just thought well we're never gonna sell all these. yeah no
0: it, it, this was this was the the days of the crash of 1983 of uh, of video games, the home gaming um, market. When and
1: everyone suddenly realized home gaming is never going to be
0: big. Were, well, the problem was it got too big too fast, right? The, right? the issue was that they had all these games that didn't have to go through any kind of quality check before they hit stores. And the market was flooded with a lot of crappy games, some of which came from big name companies because – of one reason or another. The guy who created, uh, the guy who programmed E.T. the extraterrestrial also created one of the, the most, um, uh, well criticized games for the Atari 2600 yards revenge. Uh, and it turns out that he was, you know, they, they, they gave him a very short timeline and a lot of money. And he says, all right. <laughs> and so he made, he made a game that the game he could make in that small amount of time. And, uh, as a result, uh it, it is largely pointed at as one of the reasons for the video game crash. Truly, you want to get more specific. The problem was m- way more widespread than one bad title or even two if you point to Pac-Man, which was another one that everyone cited as being a reason for the crash. But they were good examples of the problems that existed that caused the crash to happen
1: quick question yeah did you ever actually play et for the I atari 2600 e.
0: i owned et the extraterrestrial for the atari 2600 and did I, you
1: beat it on hard
0: of course i did well <laughs> well I, there was no hard but yes i did beat it uh well, did the, you
1: get all the dlc
0: <laughs> joe you might have a, a unrealistic view of what the video <laughs> game market was like back in 1983 uh no there was no downloadable content what a um, shame yeah okay
1: well What's the next item?
0: So also in April, the FCC announced it was developing new rules for the internet now that, you know, their last ones had gotten struck down. Uh, but these rules would essentially say that carriers could charge content providers for premium speeds. Now net neutrality advocates were protesting those rules because they were saying, here's the problem. You've got carriers, service carriers that are also content providers. And that's a conflict of interest. If, if you are providing content as well as the service to Deliver that content, then what stops you from giving your content preferential treatment and slowing down everybody else? So anyone who's your customer is clearly going to go with your content because they can't get anyone else's. Like that's a, that's one of the big arguments about net neutrality is that it, without it, you have the cards stacked against you, especially for service carriers that also have either relationships with content providers or they themselves are a content provider.
1: Right. They opened so you've up. Got everybody watching Comcast Tube instead of YouTube. Right. Or,
0: yeah. No, that was that's legitimately or Comcast instead of Netflix or Hulu right. or whatever. Um, yeah, that's a big issue. And in fact, uh, recently it was revealed that there were some lots of people left comments on this. Like you, they the FCC opened it up to comments on the internet, um, and we'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later. But recently. It was revealed that more than 340,000 comments uh against this proposal were mysteriously lost hmm. or not counted. And that a huge number that some argue were generated from special interest groups that were pro let's tear the Internet and charge these different. Voices. Oh, like on they accounts
1: that had just been created and it was their only post.
0: Yeah, essentially that kind of thing. Um. But anyway, that, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Moving on to May, uh, Target CEO Greg Steinhoffel set, stepped down in response to the 2013 data security breach that compromised the personal information of 70 million customers. Ugh. So yeah, another, I mean, th- it was, it was a half year after that had happened, but it, the, it was, the damages were still rolling out. And so he, he accepted a responsibility, stepped down. Um, I mean, this, again, is one of those things where in hindsight, it's very easy to say, well, clearly their security was not not sufficient uh, at the time. It's a lot harder to say, you know, oh, well, we need to we need to shore this up because we're we're vulnerable unless you are actively using white hat hackers to test your security and everything is being really put to a, a rigorous test. It's hard to say how unless you're just being incredibly lax. I don't know that anyone was arguing that. But still, real world repercussions for that beyond the the 70 million customers who had their data stolen. Uh, also in May, a European court ruled that Google must delete personal data when asked. And by personal data, they specifically meant links to other existing sites on the Internet because Google doesn't own the pages that it links to mm-hmm. in most cases. It just it's a search engine. It pulls up links in response to a query. So the argument here was that, uh, in fact, it was brought up by a guy who when you searched his name, uh, it was, I think it was like an old court case from the 90s was popping up as the top result. And uh, I think it was something about him not making a payment or something along those lines. And he said, this happened a very long time ago. It's completely resolved. It has no bearing on my life anymore. And yet, if people search my name, this is what pops up. So it, it can still negatively impact me, even though I've resolved this many years ago. So this is this brought up this concept, the right to be forgotten, the right to have things in your past you fade away. If you, if you have done your work in paying off whatever that thing was, let's say that, you know, you had to go to jail for something, but you did. You served out your sentence. You did everything you were supposed to do. You come out reformed. You are trying to start a new life. And yet if people search your name, that's the thing that pops up. It's obviously going to continue to impact you. So there's something to be said about that. The problem is that the European court system said, Well, Google, you now, if you ever get a notice saying, I want this removed from your search results, you have to respond to it, which opens up the doors for a couple of things. One, Google will never not be doing that. That will be the only thing Google does. Like there'll be a department dedicated to it because it's just a huge undertaking.
1: Right. I'd imagine most of these requests also will be without merit.
0: That's the other issue. That's the other one is that if the request is for someone who doesn't want a negative thing that is possibly still very much relevant to show up, what, what's the criteria? How can, let's say a company that's being criticized for some sort of, uh, perceived or otherwise malfeasance, like how can, how can they, you know, how can Google determine whether or not a request is legitimate or if it is, uh, something that's just trying to whitewash the background.
1: That also seems like you'd have people who would be very against this because they might own the content. Mm-hmm. So you could have somebody petition Google to undercut tremendously their traffic.
0: Yeah. Which then impacts the bottom line of whatever that site is. So if you're, let's say you're a whistleblower site and you know, you are, you're providing an actual valuable service. You're not, you're not trying to publish things that are unfounded. You are doing your due diligence as a journalist to make sure that the things you cover are as reliable as, as you can possibly be expected to prove before publishing. And then you get the links removed. And then that could mean that people, one, they don't see it. So there's important information that's not getting out there. And two, you are no longer able to make a living. And now, you know, you're, you're effectively being censored at that point. So this is still an issue that's going on right now mm-hmm. where they have not really resolved the problems around the demand. So everyone has some valid arguments. The question is what's the implementation going to be so that it doesn't cause more harm than good.
1: Yeah, it's tough. I kind of think we're just kind of, I mean, it's not nice, but we are past the age where we can expect things to be forgotten. Yeah. We're an unfortunate transitional generation who did not grow up with the expectation that everything we did would always be remembered. But that's kind of the reality now.
0: Although you could argue also that that we're very fickle as well. And things that probably should stick with us longer can very easily get dropped in favor of other things. That's some commentary about like some hacks, some reveals, some leaks of information that were big, big deals that then got eclipsed by other stories later on. That has nothing to do with any active censorship or anything. It's just human nature, the way we can very quickly uh, change our focus from one thing to another. Now, that doesn't mean that in posterity, like we won't like years down the road say, look, we need to really look at this. That's still a possibility. But uh, in a 24-hour news cycle world, we very quickly leap from one big story to another. So... Sometimes the best way to make people forget is just don't, but don't bring it up. (laughs) Just (laughs) let it go and it will be forgotten. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. So let's talk about hacking. Another hack. eBay announced it was hacked and that users should change their passwords in May. Oh,
1: that'll keep you safe.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Also in uh, May, Google unveiled a prototype driverless car that essentially just has a start button and a stop button for controls with a top speed of 25 miles per hour. There was like a little bit, I think a few more than a 100 prototypes that they were going to build from scratch. Like these were not converted vehicles. These were little tiny smart car looking things. And uh yeah, you I guess you pair it with a a Google device, like an Android phone, and you tell it where you want it to go, and it takes you there at a top speed of twenty five miles per hour.
1: Pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, but no brake, no accelerator, no steering wheel. It you completely hand over control to the car.
1: Wow, well that so that kind of contradicts something I know I've heard you say before, which is that you think cars like this are always gonna have manual override.
0: I think I think when they come to market because obviously these are prototype cars that are being tested internally right Well, i think when they come to market they'll have to i think that uh and by have to for two reasons one i think that consumers are going to demand it they're only going to be there's going to be a very small population of consumers who are going to feel comfortable completely handing over control of a vehicle to a computer and then two i think legally i think i think legislation will be passed where it'll still require manual control to be a possibility yeah i don't think you will ever get to a point at least not probably not within my lifetime where um cars can be sold that do not have a manual option at all so uh but that's a guess
1: so got a couple of apple stories right
0: yeah yeah one at the end of may that's when apple bought beats electronics for three billion dollars
1: well, I guess they decided that was a correct amount of money to pay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's about the price of what? Like three of their headphones. So, right. <laughs> um, did your headphones ever work, Joe? You got a no, pair of beats, right?
1: I got some beats. Not well, to bash beats. Ev- I'm everyone sure in beats the office are beautiful, but be- beats may be beautiful, but my beats, there are no beats.
0: That's terrible. See, mine works so well that I've been, uh, we, we got a whole bunch in our office when our office moved. To where it currently is, but won't be for much longer, <laughs> we moved into a big open office environment, which meant that we're all sitting right, you know, elbow to elbow with each other. And so we all got uh, the company bought us Beats headphones to kind of help us have our own like little sound space and
1: hatchets to keep in our desk drawers.
0: Yeah, uh, which is very worrisome because I sit right next to Robert Lamb and he's hatchet happy. But at any rate, uh my Beats were great. I'm sorry that yours never did. What color did right. you end up picking? Uh, I think green. I got red. The color of cash. Well, moving to June 2014 and another Apple story. Apple, uh, actually a couple of things that happened in June, but Apple introduced Swift, which is a new programming language for iOS and OS X development. Nice. Um, I should say OS X development, not OS X. But yeah, uh, it's it, it was a, a new era of programming here. And this was the time, June's when... Apple holds the developers conference and Google holds the IO event. So I didn't write down all the, the news that came out from that because, uh, a lot of it doesn't have a direct impact on listeners necessarily, at least not yet. And they tend to, you know, we tend to look at the the product releases more than just the corporate announcements of here's some new, you know, developer stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, also in June, the FCC opened up the discussion. This is when they specifically asked for public comment. And John Oliver did a segment uh, about net neutrality. I our- watched
1: that and it was great.
0: It was fantastic, wasn't it? He, I mean, he does a really good job of laying out what the issue is and why people should care about it. I love John Oliver's segments. Um, and he urged people to leave comments on the FCC site. More than 45,000 people did so, so much that it actually brought the site down for a little bit. Cool. Uh, and that was just the beginning. There were, there'd be hundreds of thousands of comments left over the next couple of months.
1: I'm sure they were thinking, if only we could give preferential treatment to traffic going to the FBI <laughs> site. <laughs>
0: yeah. Right. Right. Like, you know, in a year, this wouldn't have been a problem. Uh, well, also in June, despite facing resistance in lots of markets, something that's still going on today, the car service Uber was valued at $17 billion. Wow. Part of the sharing economy. Uh, then we also in June had the computer chat program that emulated a 13 year old boy from the oh, Ukraine.
1: What was his name?
0: Eugene Goostman? I, right? I believe so. I think you're right. Uh, it was a, uh, but it was, uh, it was supposed to be a 13 year old boy from the Ukraine. It was actually a software, artificial intelligence program, fooling one third of the judges at the Alan Turing Festival, which led lots of people to say it passed the Turing test, although others were quick to criticize that, that claim. Uh, saying that it it caused people to set their expectations lower than perhaps otherwise because it was it had a lot of qualifiers, right?
1: I on one hand I think uh, obviously this is a very smart piece of software, but on the other hand, I what I read about it suggested it's kind of tricksy. Yeah, like it it uses some very clever tricks on the part of the designers, but it's not really. It was tricks that actually helped them avoid the necessity to create really super robust AI. Well, yeah,
0: because it's a non-native English speaker communicating in English. Yeah. Uh, at the age of 13, meaning that there is a limited experience of the world.
1: Didn't get all kinds of cultural references and right. stuff.
0: Right. So by by limiting the references that it would understand and the context that it could understand, uh, they end up setting the questioner's expectations lower and therefore the bar is lower. Uh, This is different than if you had an artificially intelligent program that was supposed to be a native speaker in whatever language you're using and to be relatively aware of most things. You're at the the same sort of stuff the average person of that culture would be aware of and to have a conversation, a meaningful conversation with that. Uh, It also raised a lot of interesting discussion about alternatives to the Turing test, right? You know, this idea that, The Turing test is not necessarily a great test for artificial intelligence.
1: We did a podcast about that over at forward thinking.
0: Yeah. You should definitely go check that out if you're interested in the subject. That forward thinking episode was a lot of fun. Uh, and all of our podcasts are, are gathered at fwthinking.com. So if you like that kind of discussion, definitely go check that out because that was a a blast to talk about. Uh, also in June, Amazon introduced the fire phone,
1: which was, which I'm going to pretend I care about.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, you'd you'd be joining the millions of people who did not flock to the Amazon Fire Phone.
1: I think I just failed at pretending.
0: Uh, you know, it was one of those that, like, the idea is interesting. It's it it really is supposed to appeal to the Amazon Prime members, people who buy a lot of stuff on Amazon. Uh, the process of buying things would have been a lot smoother on this phone than on other devices. It had a lot of interesting innovations as far as like, um.
1: So much easier to just pour the money out of your wallet.
0: That's pretty much what every mobile device is all about, Joe. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this, this one was supposed to also have like a lot of cool features in it that would, uh, allow for, um, better depth sensing with the camera, that kind of thing. But yeah, it just never really made a big impression. Uh, also just an interesting little note. Harley Davidson introduced a prototype electric motorcycle which kind of i guess defeats the purpose of buying a harley if you can't rev it and make that really obnoxious noise i say this as someone who really would love to own a harley davidson it's true
1: i did not know that about you there's a world War- i have seen you in black leather jackets but i also believe you don't drive vehicles
0: i don't drive no i don't drive cars i don't drive
1: cars but you would drive a motorcycle absolutely i would
0: what a strange person. You can have a way more situational awareness on a motorcycle than you can in a car. But uh but you do have to worry a lot more about your safety. You have to as as motorcyclists will say, you have to imagine that you are invisible. So you have to be hyper aware of the cars around you, obviously. Uh but but there's a a World War II era Harley Davidson that uh, I absolutely would love to own. And I wrote the article on HowStuffWorks.com on how choppers work. And and that was fantastic. (laughs) I loved it. Um. Anyway, last story for June of 2014. We found out that in 2012, Facebook changed how the news feed displayed to some users as part of the psychological experiment. And people got upset about it. You remember that story? Did you hear anything about it? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. This idea that uh, they wanted to see what the psychological impact was if they if they tweaked the news feed so that certain types of stories would show more than other types.
1: Like, can they make you more depressed?
0: Yeah. And people got really mad that they became unwitting guinea pigs to uh, this this psychological state that happened two years previously.
1: <laughs> um, I was hoping that my news feed would make me depressed in random ways. Yeah. You were directing this. I
0: thought you were just... I thought all my friends were emo and it turns out you were just making me think that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, anytime Facebook makes any sort of change, it's guaranteed to upset people. But this in particular with people not feeling like they were uninformed and that they were un, unwilling participants, uh, really got to it yeah. psychologically.
1: Uh, there was some big tech company news in July, wasn't
0: there? Oh gosh. So remember Sony had announced earlier in the year that they were going to cut 5,000 jobs and everyone's like, ooh. Well, that's when in July, Microsoft announced plans to lay off 18,000 employees.
1: That's just crazy.
0: Yeah. It was the largest number of layoffs in company history for a single layoff at any rate. Uh, and Nadella, the CEO said that the plan was to streamline the engineering operations and management processes and reduce the levels of management to quote, accelerate the flow of information and decision making, end quote. And most of those jobs were in the Nokia division. They had, uh, Microsoft had acquired Nokia mm-hmm. and now they were getting rid of a lot of uh middle management largely. So yeah, it was not, not a great, not a great day to be at Microsoft. I think I'm sure, I'm sure anyone working there on that day was very much uh, on, on uh, the edge of their seat. And yeah. not all those layoffs happened at once. Obviously they, they rolled out over time. Uh, then there was this new story that, that, Ended up getting passed around, became a little viral that I thought was hilarious, largely because I knew the people involved. So I've got a friend. Her name is Veronica. Veronica has a husband named Ryan. And Veronica had gotten on the phone with Comcast, a Comcast representative, and she wanted to cancel her um her service with Comcast. Hold on, let me transfer you to somebody else. Yeah, it wasn't even that. It wasn't even that. It got worse than that. Oh, I so, no, I heard it. Yeah, she she handed after she got frustrated. Ryan, her husband, took over the phone call and at that point started to record the conversation he had with the Comcast representative, in which in which the Comcast representative took every opportunity to try and stop them from canceling their service, and um. It ended up getting pretty absurd. It and was
1: hard to believe it was real. Yeah. It, I think a lot of people were saying, like, this is staged. Yeah, it's it got to be, be real. It's
0: got to be some sort of.
1: Uh, because every single time the guy would just say, oh, I want to proceed. Can we just please in my service? He would come back at him with something else. Like, you know, can, can't you just tell me why?
0: Yeah. you,
1: you know, Yeah. <laughs> like, it, was,
0: it Like it so, was like a
1: really needy breakup.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. I swear it could change. Uh, So this ended up leading to Comcast uh, delivering an apology to Ryan and Veronica, um, saying that that was not the way customer representatives were supposed to respond to calls. Then later, there were other customer representatives, mostly anonymous ones, Claiming that, no, they're pretty much, you know, encouraged to take every opportunity to discourage you from ending your service.
1: Like that guy was doing an awesome job. Right.
0: Like that guy like that guy was essentially doing what he had been uh, told to do or all the incentives point you toward doing like you would get incentives that would be based on uh, customer retention, that kind of thing. And so anyway, it became this whole story about corporate culture and the way that uh, companies handle customers. And it was interesting to me just because I knew the people who were involved. And I, I was—I actually chatted with Veronica about it later. And she's like, yeah, I didn't expect that to end up snowballing the way it did. At any rate, uh, also in July, Foursquare would split into two services, uh, one that would remain named Foursquare and one that was called Swarm. And the check-in ability, where you would go to a place and you know you normally would go to Foursquare and check in, that went with Swarm, which left a lot of people asking, what the heck is Foursquare now?
1: Uh I'm gonna say that I always thought what the heck is Foursquare. Now, I mean I, I understand what it does. I just don't get it. Yeah. I don't understand.
0: That I totally I totally understand your confusion. I loved Foursquare for two reasons. I love the idea that one other friends who used Foursquare would be able to see if I was nearby and maybe we could end up hanging out. Hmm. Never, never worked out, but that says more about me than Foursquare. Uh, uh, the, yeah. <laughs> the other was that uh, Foursquare, you know, some places that, that would allow you to check or some places that, that had a presence on Foursquare would have specials, like special deals, like check in three times, get a free appetizer at this restaurant, that kind of thing. And my wife and I go to enough of the same places where that ended up being something cool and we like doing it but uh neither my wife nor i use swarm we both i tried it she didn't even bother she just deleted foursquare and was done uh i tried it and then deleted it i didn't no one not enough people were using it for me to to care at the time it may be different now Uh, and foursquare became more of a of a recommendation engine like Mm -hmm. you are in this neighborhood maybe you would like to have coffee here that kind of thing uh but I don't know how their numbers are doing right now, but I do know the initial response was negative.
1: I think Foursquare should have done a thing where only four people can check in at a time and then there's a line of other people waiting. And one of them is King.
0: Yeah. yeah. And manufactured exclusivity has become an incredibly popular tool. So you joke, but that could probably work.
1: (laughs) Jonathan, I just realized we've been talking for more than 50 minutes, and we've only made it halfway through 2014.
0: Yeah, yeah. Who would have thought that boiling a whole year down to an hour would be a hard thing to do? Uh, you know, you make a good point, though, Joe. If we were to continue on at this pace, obviously, this would be one the longest episode Tech Stuff has ever done. So, I'm sure
1: you've had some long ones. Yeah. But I think we should just make the second half of the year... Another podcast.
0: That sounds good to me. So we are going to wrap up here and in our next episode we'll pick up in August 2014 and talk about what happened during the second half of the year. So guys, if you have any suggestions for future topics for tech stuff, let me know. Send me an email. That address is TechStuff at HowstuffWorks.com or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. The handle at all three of those is Tech Stuff HSW, and we'll finish out 2014 really soon. mo play